Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brant. And on this episode, we're discussing SST-63, the DC-3 record, The Good Hex. You know, I'm interested to see what you think about this one, Brant. I know you kind of encouraged me to give DC-3 a try again after our last episode on them, so interested to discuss this one. Yeah, me too. And we've got a special guest, don't we? Yeah, Paul Rossler's on the podcast today. Really excited about that. He was a great guest. Really happy to have him on, so thanks to Paul for doing it. Yeah, totally. And a lot of very cool stuff uh, gets covered in the interview, so very cool. Yeah. Brant, I've got a spiel, but in it's actually a spiel gusher. All right, go. So have you ever heard of the band Spiel Gusher? Yeah, yeah. Mike it's, Watt, uh, Mike Watt, and Richard Meltzer, right? Right, with uh, a couple other folks, Yuki, no, sorry, Yuko Araki and Hirotaka Shimizu, otherwise known as Shimmy. Are they uh, Melt Banana? Oh man, I don't know. That's a good question. I never actually have looked that up. I'll try and look here at the same time. But there's a Spiel Gusher record on Clenched Wrench records do you know that label yep that's uh kind of mike watts label and he puts out some stuff uh, on that like the uh il sonio de marioneo records there's a do- a dose record on there dosi dose do you know that one i don't know that one i don't think i do no okay there's also i think hyphenated man came out on that label as well okay do you know that watt record i do yep also, Spielgusher came out on there for the first time, uh, but it's been re-released lately on a label called Feeding Tube Records. Okay. You ever heard of that label? No, never. The interesting thing about this one, well, we should talk about Spielgusher to begin with, but this re-release has got a Raymond Pettibone uh, cover on it, which is new to the release, which is very cool. Hmm. Spielgusher, you mentioned it's Watt and Richard Meltzer, Yep. and it's kind of like atmospheric instrumental kind of yeah kind of like instrumental stuff with like richard Meltzer's spoken word uh like poems and stuff over top it's kind of neat i've always kind of liked the record but i don't listen to it that much this has caused me to uh listen to it again and i would i'd recommend you take a listen to it yeah i it's good that's reminding me of the richard Meltzer album tropic of nipples that we talked about or i talked about i think on probably the three-way tie for last episode also really good yeah no i remember you mentioning that i haven't checked that one out though it's good but i've got a second spiel that's pettibone related as well okay so you're on the twitter aren't you yep do you follow raymond pettibone on twitter yep so apparently he is like very very prolific on there he's got like 25,000 followers and something in the order of like 43,000 tweets. It amounts to like several hundred tweets a year on average over the last eight years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Anyways, a guy named Andrew Durbin has collected kind of the best Pettibone tweets and has, has collected it into a book. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's called Spit the Words, Rereading Pettibone's Twitter. And it's kind of a collection of Pettibone's Twitter and some analysis and connecting a bunch of 
threads throughout all the tweets and stuff. Okay. I ordered it because I've I want to I want to read that stuff and I'm definitely not on Twitter. All right. Interesting. Uh yeah, I haven't paid that close attention to his Twitter feed to be honest with you. Maybe I'll have to revisit that. Apparently it's pretty pretty out there and it then is. also it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really out there and it's also sometimes a little I don't know. I I guess um little controversial it is. now and there. It is, yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's graphic <laughs> at times, you know. It's yeah, much like his yeah. artwork. Uh, maybe yeah, that's well, why I haven't... Maybe I need to order this book because the, the stuff I have taken the time to read is almost nonsensical, but maybe I'm just not <laughs> looking at it through the right lens, you know? Yeah, well, I mean... I may regret ordering the book, but anyways, I had I had to uh, I had to check it out when I saw it. Cool. That's it. Do you have any spiel gushers? Great spiels. Uh, yeah, I do. I have a few. Uh, first of all, I wanted to just throw it out there that we got a great response to your Homestead blog, and I wanted to give my two cents on it now that it's out there, Ryan. Oh shit. Number one, I I agree with you that uh, the self titled dinosaur album should be number one. It's a great pick there. Attaboy. Number two, I agree with you that All Rise is the best Naked Raygun album. Attaboy. Yep. And number three, I just wanted to say that uh, I was really interested to see that the Nomads album, Outburst, it was released on Homestead because that's not the pressing I have and I didn't know it came out on Homestead, so very cool. Well, different, yeah, it was. You know, I think it was licensed to Homestead, I think. But yeah. as I said on the blog... I don't care how Homestead got it. If if the Homestead label is on the back, it counts for my blog. Yeah, well, I love the Nomads, as you know. So that's an awesome record too. It's a great one. One yeah. of their better ones. I want to give you. I want to give you a shout out too on the blog. I uh, I recommended a. Well, I guess in my top ten was a, a band called Phantom Toll Booth, which is a band you turned me on to probably, like twenty years ago. So yeah, thanks for that. Everyone should head over to mojackpod.com and check that out if they haven't yet. It's really good, and Ryan put a ton of work into it, so uh, please go check that out. I've got some more spiels here, Ryan. One of our listeners, KVL Puretone, I think, on SoundCloud. This is in response to the Who's Got the Ten and the Ten and a Half episode. Let us know that Anthony... Martinez went on to play in a band called Pygmy Love Circus, which was a big LA rock band from the Jane's Addiction period and a precursor to, to Tool for Danny Carey. Now, I don't know much about Tool, not a, not a Tool guy, but I do know who Pygmy Love Circus is. Didn't know Anthony was in that band, though, and I don't think we mentioned that, so that's kind of cool. No, we did not, and in fact, I've got a couple of their singles. I'm, uh, I'm now curious to see if he's on any of them, I'll have to check that out. That's a cool one. I, uh, I definitely was not aware of that. Here's my main spiel for the week. So I was feeling a little bit bad, Ryan, that uh, I really liked the artwork for Gone and kind of wished that I would have made more of an effort to maybe uh, find out a little bit more about it. So I, I tracked down Ted Connect. Now you'll remember Ted did the artwork for the the cover of Painted Willie, Mind Bowling. 
He also did the cover for Gone, Let's Get Real Real Gone for a Change. And he also, I don't think we mentioned this, did the back cover for uh, Love Doll Superstar. So I'm going to read you some spiels I got from Ted from some questions I asked him. Are you ready? Awesome. Totally. Okay. Most of my art back then was acrylic and gauche. The mind bowling cover is acrylic on illustration board. I did a thick layer of clear medium with orange and red sprinkled in and smeared it to look like fire. I masked off the face and right side typed and airbrushed. The face was taken from a Polaroid of my old skater bud, Jay. The Ray Charles Gone cover was done by photographing. Did you catch what I just said there, Ryan? The Ray Charles photograph? Yeah. <laughs> It's Ray Charles. The Ray Charles Gone cover was done by photographing Ray off an old low-res TV with a Nikon 35mm. I believe he was on SNL. I scanned the printed photo into a Canon photocopier and made color separations on clear acetate. So the whole thing was a bunch of acetates layered just wrong enough to be awesome. Just the viciousness of the black and magenta made it work for me. I did the back cover of Love Doll Superstar. Not proud of it. I tried to emulate the Walk of Fame stars, but I didn't. I don't think it came off. They used it anyway, so okay. Same thing, acrylic and airbrush. I like the back cover of that album myself, but I don't think we mentioned that it was Ted Connect who did it when we did the episode, so happy to get that in there. Okay, here's the cool part, Ryan. I played bass in a band called SVDB. Back in the day. Do you remember them? We mentioned them. We mentioned them on, on, I think, the Painted Willie episode. SVDB stands for St. Vitus Dance Band. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Vic and Vince Makuskas and Pat Masingo on drums. So Vic was in Painted Willie. When Painted Willie happened, Vic hired me to do some cover art. Mind bowling was actually a piece I had done at random, and we just put type on it. Vic introduced me to Chuck and Greg, and we had a meeting in Lawndale at a Mexican restaurant. I showed them my por- my portfolio, and they liked my Ray, Ch- Ray Charles mashup image and bought it on site for the Gone cover. And then he added this, Ryan. Total aside, my nephew is Dave Longst- Longstrength of Dirty Projectors. Do you remember them, Ryan? I don't. Okay, they're from Brooklyn, and they did an album of Black Flag covers called Rise Above that came out on that label Dead Oceans in 2007. I know we mentioned them at one at one point, but coincidentally, the leader of that band, Dave, is Ted Connect's nephew. Well, there's a Ted connection there. There is. That's it. That's my spiels. That's a good one, man. You earned your uh, you earned your Mojack badge for that one. <laughs> Hey, um, I was just, I was running around my pile of stuff and I found my Pygmy Love Circus records. So check this out. Okay. I've got a Pygmy Love Circus single called I'm the King of L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, on drums, Anthony Martinez. This is, yeah, this is on Sympathy for the Record Industry, 1989. Got another one, another single. It's got the songs beat on the brat and mick jagger mm-hmm. and or mick jagger killed brian jones is the song oh i know it that does, yeah it doesn't um there's no band credits on it though 
Hmm. There's no insert or anything, so I don't know if Anthony's on this release. And then I've got a record, a CD, I guess, by Pygmy Love Circus on Go-Kart Records called uh, The Power of Beef. Mm -hmm. And on drums is a guy named Dan Carey. So Anthony must have been in the band kind of, I guess, early on, but this is a, a later record. But that's um, cool. I never I never realized that. That's that's a really good tip. Yeah. I've just been thinking about that Mick Jagger killed Brian Jones song. I'm I'm wondering if that's not a cover. I know I know that song from somewhere. Hang on a second, hang on. It is uh, credited to Savage Walters Stevenson Fletcher. Hmm. Do any of those last names well, ring a bell? Why don't you cross-reference them with the sympathy single? Okay, man, this is why you uh, got the uh, the research badge here tonight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's the same guys, except okay. yeah, Savage Walters Stevenson Fletcher instead of Savage Walters. No, Savage Walters Stevenson Fletcher, and then Martinez on drums, but he's not credited on this other one. So hmm. that's appears to be a uh, an original Pygmy Love Circus song. All right, well, I'm either confused or I've heard that on a comp or something. Yeah. You've got a ton of sympathy comps, don't you? Yeah, I've got a few, yeah. Yeah, that might be it. Yeah. That's awesome. We've got some definitely uh definitely had some spiel gushers there. Yeah. Do you want to get into DC3 The Good Hex? Yeah, I've got a uh a fresh cup of black coffee. Let's do it. History lesson, part one. Tell well, me why I should like DC3 again. Well, before we do that, we'll save that for history lesson part two. I do have a brief uh, spiel I got from Joe Carducci, who produced this album. And then maybe we'll kick it over to Paul Rossler. Sounds good. Okay, here's from Joe Carducci. Dave Tarling was going to produce this album as he was doing the later Black Flag albums and he had a hard rock approach, but something came up, so I did it since I knew the studio pretty well. But I didn't have enough time to really watch DC3 practices. We got the bass sound wrong and then found we had too much business in the upper mid range going on, what with Paul's keyboard as well, and the sounds kind of merged there at the expense of the low end. We did an extra, tr extra track, theme from an imaginary western, but didn't finish it there. We mixed it at Tempo in Santa Monica, where Sacron Trust's World Broken and Angst's Mending Wall were done. I'm going to pause right there so we can discuss some of that, Ryan. So, number one, a theme from a an imaginary western. You remember that, right? That was on Blasting Concept 2? Yep. And uh, do you remember... The World Broken album by uh, Sacron Trust, that's the live one, like the the improv one. I seem to recall they recorded that in a venue and like snaked the the cables over to the venue from a studio that was nearby or like next door. Okay. So that's the studio we're talking about. I guess that's we'll be looking forward to that on uh, the next DC3 album a and Angst's uh, Mending Wall. Definitely. Okay, so Des, this is from Joe again. Des liked how that came out, so they did their next album there, producing themselves with Glenn Alup. That was a nice little studio and 
Glenn did a good job with them. So that's going to be SST 83. So exactly 20 episodes from now, we're going to be getting to the next DC3 album. Uh, and then finally from Joe, it was great. The band had a bassist, Caesar from the Stains, as they didn't have one on the first album, with Kira gone to Black Flag. But somehow we sort of lost the bass on the good hex anyway. Sorry, Des. So there's a little spiel from, from Joe Carducci. Excellent. Thanks, as always, Joe. Yeah, and when he sent this in, he was in Hermosa Beach doing a speech with, or doing a panel with Spot and Des Cadena's mom, actually, at an art gallery for, um, you know, another Spot photo exhibit. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I think Des's mom kind of helped. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know her name right now. I don't have it in front of me, but I think she helped booking with Des's dad at that uh, jazz club that we've mentioned before. The lighthouse. Yeah, I think she she uh, kind of helped out with that. So we should mention Ryan that uh, the rhythm section on this album, the last DC three album we talked about had Kurt Markham on drums and no bass player. It was just a trio, hence the DC three. This is technically the DC four because we've got a new rhythm section. Yeah, with uh, Louis and Cesar. Yeah. So Louis didn't actually play on that Stains record that we talked about. He came into the band after that album came out, but Caesar was on it, so they were they were both in the stains. So why don't we kick it over to the Paul Rossler interview, and then we'll come back and and talk about it. Let's do it. All right, so we're speaking to Paul Rossler tonight. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. So, Paul, one of the bands that comes up the most in some of the books that we've been referencing on the podcast is The Screamers. Now, was that your first first band? Uh, no, I've been doing music for a long time before I was in The Screamers in um, high school, but it was uh, kind of the first, um, first big punk band I was in. I had played drums for some punk bands before that, and I'd, I'd had my own pog band in high school, and... Uh, done a bunch of other stuff but um it was the first big big punk band i was playing with yeah prog band hey oh yeah yeah <laughs> i had wrote a uh, i wrote a 46 minute prog rock opera and we performed it a few times and then in 2012 i recorded it and released it called the arc oh okay i know i know the album that you recorded that prior to being in the screamers even I wrote or, or wrote it, it I wrote sorry. It. Yeah, wrote it. Yeah, I wrote it prior to the Screamers, and then I recorded it in 2012. Wow. Had you Did you have like a demo of it to reference it, or did you just remember it that whole time? I did. Well, I had, writ- I had written it out, but I also had a rehearsal tape that I also used. Um, to, it, was a, it was a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And... I, did it, I did it fast. I did it really fast when I recorded it, actually. I, I played everything myself, and um, I, it took, even though I did it really, almost everything was like first takes, it still took like 700 hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, another band we've talked about a few times is Twisted Roots that you played in with uh, your sister, and also reunited, I believe, in around 2011? Uh, well, we did one show in 2011 with the uh, one of the really early lineups with Pat Smear on guitar and Kira. And um, Des played in that for a little while, too, and recorded one album with us. Okay. 
Yeah, that was kind of going simultaneous to DC3. I was doing a couple different bands at the same time I was in DC3. I was in 45 Grave at the same time also. Right. I didn't realize that Twisted Roots and DC3 were active at the same time. Well, Twisted Roots was a little before, but then we sort of reunited, and we had um, one of the reunited versions had Dez on guitar, and Kurt Markham played drums for us. Okay. I was doing... I was playing with those guys at the same time and Kurt was a great drummer and of course Dez is Dez. So, so that was, uh, yeah, like, uh, we did a few shows with that, I think. All right. And then DC three eventually comes together with, uh, you and Kurt. And I believe Kira was originally jamming with you was when she backed out to play with, with flag. Did you ever think of getting a bass player or did you just kind of go forward without one? Uh, I was actually doing bass since I wasn't really, playing um if you listen to that first album there's not really any keyboards i'm just doing the bass yeah you know, that's basically all i was all i was doing on that so and that was like a um interesting challenge and and i i'm always sort of drawn to um this sort of you know the early la scene was, was so incredible the, the group of bands that sort of appeared out of nowhere the screamers and the weirdos and the germs and the deadbeats and um i don't know x and the dickies it was such a hot scene and by 1982 or 1983 i really felt like sst had just sort of taken the mantle as being like it was sort of the, the continuation of this incredible collection of bands i was really attracted to it you know and i was really i saw black flag do some shows where they had um they had started slowing down and doing you know, not so, I mean, I, to me, they were, they were a little sort of generic a little bit when they started, although they were really good, but they weren't really something that I would have been super interested in, but then they really evolved. And I, I saw that evolution early on. And I also saw some, um, some shows, uh, with the Chuck Biscuits, um, uh, Chuck Dukowski and with Des and Greg both playing guitar. And that was you know, as good as good a band as I've like ever seen in my life. So I was really attracted to um that SST, what was happening down there, the Minutemen and and um, the Meat Puppets and all these great bands that were so I, I you know, I, I was kind of hanging around the periphery of it and um even though I was doing a lot of other stuff, I was really interested in you know, I mean I I think I did a jam with Black Flag a few times and Played on a Saccharine Trust record, so I was really attracted to the whole um, the talent that was sort of. I, I just it's like a scene. It was this collection of um, of talented people, and so when Des was looking, um, I think Kira was. It was actually Kira's idea. It's kind of a crazy idea to have me take over on bass, her bass on on synth, which was pretty hard to do, honestly. <laughs> I'm pretty challenging, but I found that musically that was interesting. You know, it was something really kind of different to try to just be the bass player on a, on a Moog. <laughs> when we discussed that, that album for our, for the episode, I, I remember, I recall discussing the fact that, you, you know, if you played it for somebody who didn't know any better, you really wouldn't know that, that it wasn't a bass player. So I think you nailed it. Yeah, it's it. interesting. I, I listened to it and, um, you know, I've been producing now for uh, uh, many, many years. And um, it's funny because in the 80s, I was really, really concentrating on playing the notes 
and uh, how the songs went and stuff like that. And it wasn't until later that I started becoming deeper into the sonics. And I listened to that sort of in preparation to talk to you. And I was like, ah, oh, man, I would have, I would have made the bass sound different now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would have done it, but I, I agree. It's not, it's not really obvious, you know, it sounds like it's just like a band playing, Yeah. but, um, I, uh, I probably would have been more conscious of, um, subsonic frequencies than I was at the time, but you know, it's like, it was a challenge. It's like, um, you can't know everything. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I told, I've been telling people lately, like, Someone said, you should write a book. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to play music. You know, <laughs> I've been doing it for 50 years and I feel like I'm starting to get there if I keep working really hard at it. Yeah. Well, I guess that was, that's what keeps it uh, fresh for you. Yeah. It just is always more. Yeah. So I listened to that and I was like, well, I would have sounded, I would have sounded slightly differently now, but I like that first record anyway. I think it's unique sounding. It's a great, and, you know, it's when a great he said he wanted to get, yeah, I think, I think a lot of it, first of all, I think the songs he wrote were really, really, he was really inspired. It's kind of like that when George Harrison left the Beatles and he had something to prove and he had all <laughs> these great songs. And I feel like when, when Dez left Black Eyes, he had some really, really great material. And, you know, so it was, it was cool and interesting. And, and, um, later on, you know, he got Caesar and Louie and, um, in a way, it was like, well, I w that's not really what I was interested in doing when I first joined it. But I it wasn't my original reason for doing it. But um, but I thought that we we discovered really interesting things with Louis and Caesar as far as improvising, and and I got a chance to you know do a lot of improvisation on keyboards and not being just stuck in the low end. So. Uh, so I like the progression of the band. I like okay. the way it progressed. Were Were you a, like a fan of the Stains? Did you Did you see get to see them? Uh, not really. Like people are always asking me. I just got done telling someone on a, I was on some Facebook thread. I did. A, I I was thinking yesterday when I um, whenever you know people talk about '80s music, they're always talking about like. MTV and, and bands like Duran Duran or something. And it, it struck me that when I think of 80s music, the first band that comes to mind for me is the Minutemen. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I just, I thought that was just funny to me because I just shows that I'm kind of weird the way I think about things. But then it, what it really just gave everybody an opportunity to say what their favorite band of the 80s was, which was not my point at all. And people were saying bands like New Order and um the replacements and i was like yeah i don't i don't i don't think i ever heard new order or the replacements <laughs> so the stains also i'm like generally really super involved in what i'm working on mm -hmm. and i do become a fan of certain things but it's like kind of astonishing how many things i miss and so i i hadn't been a fan of the stains although i had run into robert and he's a really intimidating and ferocious presence and i knew he was a really good guitar player but I'm not sure I was ever at, at a show that they played. I know there was going to be a Stains reunion show that I was at, and they just decided not to play. So I missed my one chance <laughs> years later to see them. They decided not to play at their reunion show. <laughs> yeah. It was, I saw them like 
leaving and they were all laughing when they were leaving and I'm like, oh God, that's trouble. <laughs> and they just never came back. I wanted to ask you about the artwork for that album. Is that, we were just assuming that that was a photograph that your dad took. It was, yeah. The, the, uh, the first, this is the dream. Yeah, yeah, that was one of my dad's pictures. Uh, so interesting that you, when uh, Louis and Caesar came in, you know, it cha- obviously it changed up the dynamic of the band, but maybe changed your vision for the band a little bit. Did having a bass player in free you up, or or was it? Did it change kind of what you yeah, what it, you wanted it, to do? It, it totally it totally freed me up to be a keyboard player. You know, it totally was. I was actually at that point I was no longer the bass player. I was a keyboard player. And at first I was like, well, there's something really unique about what we are doing as a three piece without bass. That's a unique and, and, and especially in the context of the SST bands and any of the punk bands. Right. right? I, and there wasn't any, and I don't like the idea that we were doing an instrumentation that was really so that, but you know, that's not, that's a, a great idea and a great thing. But we did that on that one album. So at first I was kind of like, really, do you want to just go with the regular lineup? That's, you know, and I had imagined a sort of as a um, black flag meets Hawkwind sort of thing. And then it, it started going more and more towards blues and cream and Derek and the dominoes and um, some of this, um, you know, John Lee Hooker, we did a John Lee Hooker yeah. song. So that was the kind of a direction I wasn't really expecting. <clears throat> I wasn't thrilled about it conceptually, but, um, you know, I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed the execution of it. It was fun to do, you know. And we did a lot of, um, there's a lot, of, it was a time where part of the, um, you know, if all art is a reaction about what had come before, that early DC3 was the, and Black Flag 2, we were, we were reacting against the two and three minute songs that had sort of been mandated by punk rock for the first, several years of its existence and we were going ahead and, and some other bands are doing that too i mean public image had stretched out on the metal box and done longer stuff yeah. and so but dc3 there was a, a it started becoming a re, there was a real retro thing that crept into it it was sort of hard to keep out like when we started improvising and stretching out songs with the bass player and drummer it really started to have a a strong 70s you know, throwback vibe, which, um, you know, conceptually, like, like not, wasn't super what I wanted to do as an idea, but, uh, like I said, flip side of us, it was smart. And I think some really good stuff happened. I feel like in the good hex, it was kind of a transitional album. And I didn't think that, um, the collection of songs was as strong as on the first record. For one thing, I wrote two of the songs, and I think all the songs I wrote for DC3 are just terrible. <laughs> that's just my opinion. Oh, I, I, really, I, I disagree. I, well, that's good. That's that's <laughs> why they just kind of make make me cringe. But um, I feel like he hadn't written five or six really great songs for that record yet. I think there was an instrumental. Now, by the third record, I thought he wrote, I thought he wrote a bunch of really great songs again. So um, I thought the Good Hex, I didn't really think we were ready to record that record. I feel like there was still, it needed, um, I, and these are just my impressions at the time, you know? Yeah. But I think the song, The Good Hex, is a really, really beautiful song. And, um, but I really thought it was, it was like, it was a little rushed. I don't know how long it was between the 
from This is the Dream to The Good Hex, but it seemed like it was kind of quick. But then by, by the time I was really, really into the third album because I really felt like he had, he had been through some life stuff and he had transmitted that into, uh, into music that was really personal. And I really felt strongly and by the third album, I felt like we had made the transition as a band and, uh, and he really had something important to say. Um, whereas I feel like the good X is a little bit of a transitional record. Yeah. I feel like it seems like these two, the, the, the last two, the good hex and you're only as blind came out fairly quickly together. Like, I think they both came out in 86. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, was the first was, did we get, this is the dream out by 84, 85. I think 85, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. So that's funny. So that's like three albums in, you know, two and a half, three years. That's yep. pretty fast. Yeah. But I do think that he, I think Des had been through a, a relationship and, uh, and he really, the songs just really poured out of him in a really inspired way for, um, for you're only as blind as your mind can be. Yeah. I think, he, um, I think so, he references that in the liner notes, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. And I could, I watched him as he was writing. I was watching the songs come out and I go, okay. So whereas the good hex, I felt a little bit like I, I wasn't sure. Like I said, I had written two songs. There was an instrumental, there was a cover, so he really hadn't written that many songs for that record, you know? Yeah. Um, I think The Locust was a good one that he wrote. I was trying to listen to it, but I couldn't find it. All I have is the vinyl, and I, I, didn't, I didn't dig it up because I haven't heard that record in a long time. I've heard the other, other two. You did some vocals? On um, The Good Hex. Yeah. I believe. Yeah, I wrote two of them. I wrote Remain Forever True and No One But Yourself to Blame? Yeah, yeah. That one, that yeah. one was a good live song. No one let yourself to blame went see was good live. But I always felt like I always feel like um when a band has a lead singer like Des, it's it's always kind of distracting to let the keyboard player sing a song. It was never something I felt very comfortable with, you know. I really just feel like the the, the band should have a, it should be like a triangle and the singer is in the front and you know, he may have a guitar in his hand, but it's sort of like a, an arrow, you know, that points. And I always felt <laughs> sort of awkward and like distracting, like, oh, let's let the keyboard player sing a song and then we'll get back to the real set. And I mean, that, that's actually what I felt. And even as a producer, when I work with artists, I feel like um, there's something about keeping the focal point somewhat sharp, you know. But, you know, they, they, they like doing they like me to do those songs. And, and I'm, I like to, you know, I'm always writing stuff. I just... uh I was never, and then on that record, there's two songs I wrote, which is like, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's really, I always felt it should really be about Des, you know? I really felt like that was the, uh, I felt like I wanted to be in a supporting role in that band. And so stepping forward and singing felt like it diluted it a little bit. But, you know, I guess that's just identity of the band was that I was a little bit more visible part of it than I kind of wanted to be in a way. Fair enough. Would you guys stretch some of these songs out live? Yes. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> some people, we had the nickname DC three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah. And, and there's, you know, you, you can sort of hear it on the live album, which I, I kind of really pushed for that because I felt like, um, I felt like this, the second and third, even the, the third album, I felt like the production, well, I thought the songwriting was really strong. I felt like the production sounded thin. 
And um, I really wanted to try to capture what was happening with that band live because I thought it was, I thought, uh, I'm in a band now called the Jaton Damon Quartet. And it's, um, I really like this thing that happens where you can sort of, the music can take you to a place where you sort of forget where you are. And not just for the people playing, but also for the audience. And I mean, I guess some of the bands that, you know, I mean, I never listened to the Grateful Dead and I wasn't a, a fan of them, but um, like some of the SST artists were, but that idea of taking an audience through an improvisation and having them explore with you, I think is uh, it's sort of an interesting idea. And we were able to do that with DC3. We were sometimes able to get this, this um, roar going and then it would um, go through these different, these different places between me and Des and, and Louie and Caesar, we would like, you know, extend and theme and do theme and variations. And, and also, you know, again, it's a reaction against what had been going before to an extent and, and like trying to synthesize all the things like, okay, so punk rock came and even though they said there were no rules, there clearly were some rules. So let's remember that actually punk rock wasn't supposed to have rules, which means we really are free to, to indulge in, uh, musical explorations or reference the blues or whatever, whatever is a true expression of Dez's personality and soul, that that's fair game, you know? Yeah. Who would you have been playing with? Like, were you playing with other SST bands mainly? Oh, with our, our tours? Well, we, we yeah. toured, we toured with Black Flag, I think was our first tour. Yeah. Uh, and then we toured with Firehose, which was our second tour. And we went out on our own once or twice. Well, then we did four tours, Firehose and uh, Black Flag. And then when we were out on tour, we would we would sometimes do a few a leg with some other band. Like we toured with Soul Asylum for a while before they had success. They were a really okay. great live band. They had some success later. And then um, you know, so uh, there was a band called Kill Slug from Boston that we thought was yeah. really funny, and we wound up doing some shows with them. You know them. Well, we've—I think we've talked about them on the podcast before, yeah. They were uh, hilarious, but yeah, main, I know the first two tours to kind of get the band launched was um, with Black Flag and um, and uh, Firehose. Oh, we did a lot of LA shows, you know, aside from the touring, right? And that was a nice deal with SSC bands, and but then we got some weird bills. We, I think we played with—we might have played with James Addiction, and um, we played. I, a little hard to remember, but it, it did tend to be within the SST community, you know? Well, Jane's Addiction's not that odd of a pairing. They're, at heart, I, I would say, a classic rock band. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love them. And, um, you know, they've been around for a long time, and people think of them as sort of a big arena rock band, I think. But, you know, for me, they were, I, I, they were a club band, and a really one of the last, I would say that they were one of the last really great L.A. punk bands. They were kind of the the last, because L.A. punk scene lasted quite a while, from 77 to maybe 87, I would say. And um, in 87, you know, Guns N' Roses came out, and this, everything kind of split up, and there was this metal scene going on. And um, I think a lot of kids that might have gone into punk rock or that vibe did, you know, went into the metal scene instead. God yeah. help them. And... Um, so it sort of ended there. Uh, it kind of, I feel like it ended in, but James Addiction, I felt like was a real direct, had directly sprung from, from the, um, 
early scene. You know, I think he was aware of all the first bands and Harry was at least. I wanted to ask you about the recording of this album, The Good Hex, um, because one thing that stood out to me is that there's some dates listed on the back of the LP and there's quite a few, which is odd for an SST release. Usually it's like one 48 hour, you know, session or something like that. This has multiple dates. Do you remember the recording at all? Yes, I do. And it was, it was really unfortunate because, um, Joe Carducci was producing. And what happened was when they booked the day, I had already a previous, uh, studio date that I could not, was not flexible. I believe it was the sleep and safety album with 45 oh, grave, yeah. which was, which was a bummer. Um, and because um, I really wanted to work with Joe, I, I didn't really know Joe very well, but I was really interested to work with him. I really felt like DC3 was a band that it should all go down at once. So I had to go back and overdub all my parts. And I felt like that was really hard because the sounds that I had didn't, because they'd already sort of gotten the sound, my, I felt like a lot of my sounds felt kind of pasted on top of it. So that was yeah, it was difficult, and I think that's probably why the dates are. I had to come back and and um, do that after, and uh, yeah, it was it was a it was. A, I I don't remember this stuff too well because it was quite a long time ago. But I right. do remember that I had a conflict, and I'm sure everybody was furious at me. But it was like, hi, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you did not. I don't think they they cleared in advance. They just had booked the time, and they weren't able to be flexible with it. So I wound up overdubbing. I really wasn't really satisfied with that. I'm curious to listen because I, I guess I got to pull out the vinyl and listen to my crappy turntable and see what it sounds like because it's, I'm not finding it on YouTube and I don't have it digitally. But yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I remember that it was a bit of a, a struggle for me doing it that way because it just... I mean, they had, as a bass, drums, and, and guitar, they had a really very organic bluesy sound that they had gotten on that record. And I was kind of coming in with sort of these 80, I wish, I wish I could have had a, a Hammond B3 or a Fender Rhodes, but I, I mean, I didn't have that, you know? So I was coming in using whatever I, whatever, uh, I think it was FM synthesis, um, synth that I was using at the time. And it was just, it was, it was a struggle. And I, I'm curious to hear it now with producers ears to hear if they were able to integrate those keyboards ultimately, or if it always felt what sort of stuck on top, which is how it felt when I was doing it. If the compromise was to record sleep and safety, I think you can maybe sleep at night <laughs> knowing that you played well, an, an amazing, two amazing albums simultaneously. I mean, it, 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 you know, it wasn't that it was that it was that those sessions were booked already, you know, yeah. they, they were booked it and, Sleep and Safety was a, it was, um, kind of a, uh, they, they were blowing, they were spending more money on it and there was a blocked out time and I, and, uh, I, it was already booked, you know, so it was, I'm sure every, and I'm, I'm sure it was, as I recall, was irritated with me, but, um, I, you know, that's just the way it was. It's so funny because, um, I was in my twenties at that time and I feel like when you're in your twenties and even in your thirties, it's possible to get in fights and arguments with people. Like now that's almost impossible for me. It's almost, it's just, I mean, I can't even get in a fight with my wife, you know, I just, I'm just, it's, I just no longer 
have the inclination to get to have like bad feelings with people in general. Yeah. So, but I remember at that time it was we were young and we were all still. I mean, it was a weird time for me. I I was, I'd say, in, in '84 and '85, '86. I was, I was like 25, 26, 27 years old. I already had two kids, and I was married. It was like a quite an intense period of my life, and I was playing with all these bands. And uh, so, yeah, the good hex. I, I almost felt like I was, I drifted away a little bit, even though we were touring and I was still playing with them a lot. Um, that, that, I was the only thing I think those guys were doing. And so I might have felt a little peripheral. And then when we did the live album and you when we did You're Only Is Blind, I really felt really committed to it because I felt like it was really important statement from Des. And, um, and then I really thought the live album was really important because I had a feeling that we were, I had the feeling that the end was coming really. And, um, I felt like the, the, it would be really important to document and to capture, um, the live shows. And so we recorded three different live shows and then just picked the tracks where it seemed like it was kind of magical. And, um, I'm really glad we did that live record too. I felt like it was a, that was a good, um, a good summation of that band. Do you know when the band did split up? What, do you know what year it was? Was it 88? Uh, 87, 88, I think we did Vita. Yeah. I wasn't sure if yeah. the album, if the live album came out when the band was still, together or or afterwards i think actually the live album might have been 88 because i'm i'm thinking that you're only as blind did you say it came out in 87 i think it came out in 86 86 yeah um vita might have been 87 or 88 but it took us a minute to get that together because we had to do the shows and then we had to pick the songs and mix them but um yeah i think it was over by 88 they might have done i think they they played together a little bit maybe without me hmm. but i felt like i had um I had done like four tours and I'd done four albums and um I, I I don't know, it felt like um I don't know that I quit or if they kicked me out or if we broke up. I can't really remember <laughs> how how it ended, but I could sense the end coming before it happened. Right. Do you know if there was any unreleased studio recordings? Or like an uh, aborted aborted fourth studio album or anything like that? Uh you mean without me? I that I don't or know. or with you? Not not with me. I think uh, no. I think all the stuff we recorded um, was released. There was a lot of um, there's some live stuff maybe that wasn't released, but uh, and then I'm you know I think Des and Caesar started a band called Vita, but right. by that point SST was kind of like I don't think SST was really going anymore. And then I was happy that later that uh, Des got in the Misfits and got to do that for a while. And I'm curious how the Criminy project with mike watt came about well when d boone first died it's funny because i've uh i've saw something similar with pat um pat smear when darby died and they right. were so so connected and um he was so at loose ends when that happened and i think mike was really like that too he was really um i don't think he knew if he was even going to play music anymore you know yeah. and i think Kira's might have been the one that started um, pulling him out and doing the bass, doing ghosts. Yep. And that was one of the first things. And I think, she, again, I think she might have said, why don't you play with Paul? And um, for Mike, I think, I'm because I'm a, I'm a school musician and I'm a keyboardist, it was so foreign to anything he had done. So I think that was 
really interesting. And, and it was really foreign to me too. I mean, this, you know, a keyboards and bass is a, um, <laughs> pretty unique lineup. And, um, it was the kind of thing that was, um, that, uh, when we would do it and I was playing a real acoustic piano and he was playing bass, it was very interesting. Um, but then when we do shows, there'd never be a piano and I'd have to do it on some kind of fake synthesizer or something. And we actually toured once. I think when, when DC three opened for Firehose, Crimeny was on that bill too. And I wasn't, you know, with the piano and the bass together, that was a very interesting, I feel like the piano and the bass are, they, they married well. But when I was just playing yeah. a, a DX seven or some sort of synth that might have worked fine for DC three live, it was it's not the same. But and also, man, you know, like I would write like ten songs and I would present them to Mike and I go, well, I wrote these songs. They go, great, let's do them. And I'd be like, <laughs> really, all of them? Like some of these are terrible. And he'd be like, no, let's do them all. And I was like, was thinking that he would like pick two, you know. Right. So I actually think some of the some of the songwriting is super questionable too, you know, like just odd. Just, it was, it was a very odd project, but I feel like, um, with music, it's like so much more a matter of, um, what music does to us. And at that time, I feel like that was, um, that was keeping Mike moving forward, you know, right. was like the most, that was the most important thing, I think, you know, sure. You mentioned Pat Smear, Pat Ruth and Smear, an album you played on, I believe, in around 87 uh, that came out on SST. And you also did one of your own, Abominable. We're a ways off from those, but can you give us a little a little teaser? Anything you can tell us about yeah. those albums? Well, yeah, I mean, the Ruth and Smear album was, um, uh, that was another thing where Pat wasn't, I guess, you know, he started playing with the adolescents. He started playing with 45 Grave, and then we did Twisted Roots together. And then, uh, him and Kira, I think there was friction between him and Kira. That band was very combustible with the personalities. So after okay. that broke up, I would just go over to his house with a four track and start recording Pat songs. So we recorded the whole album just on a, on a, on a little four track. And then I thought that he's, you know, he's just like one of the most amazing musicians I've ever played with. People don't really realize because, um, in the Foo Fighters, he's somewhat in such a supportive role and in the germs his, his guitar play is in a way it's kind of taken for granted but i think it's like incredibly influential i think it's a huge influence on black flag right. and bands the hardcore bands that came afterwards and i think those bands influenced a, a, a you know a thousand other bands so i think pat is a but what he was doing with me was more of a um sort of queen because he he and he was really influenced by queen and yes and some some of these more glam and prog bands he was doing stuff more like that and i was really really interested in capturing um this side of pat that no one had ever seen and then after we did those demos i i called mike about um possibly putting it out on new alliance because i said look i've just made these recordings with pat and he he's amazing and he doesn't write lyrics but i mean i get i would he would go to my notebooks and he would pick four he picked four different little fragments that i had and put those to it and then he had the song Golden Boy that Darby had written the words for. And then um, he had some, I think his wife or his girlfriend at the time wrote, so he would just pick up lyrics out of the blue to, to, and glue them onto this amazing music. And um, and Mike said, sure. And he put us into the studio. I guess it was Radio Tokyo with Ethan James, right? 
Yep. And um, so we re-recorded the songs, and Nina Hagen came in and sang on one of them. You know, it's all programmed on a Lynn drum. It's like there's no real drums on there. Okay. Um, but I thought that was, uh, I think that's uh, an incredible album, really. I mean, I mean, some yeah, people maybe don't get, can't get past his voice, but I'm super proud of that. And then the, um, the Abominable album, I feel like, is the first record I did that I was actually really really proud of like from beginning to end i can listen all the way through that and i guess it's kind of obscure because it's instrumental but there's nothing on like most records i made in the 80s i listen back to them and i just wish they were different you know yeah they're just never i mean i think the 45 grave record is cool and i think the dc3 album some there's some of them are, are really great and some of them less so but i really like i felt like the pot album and the abominable album i felt like uh really were more um like and i was really felt that was of service to to des to try to realize des vision you know but i felt like um i did the same thing for pat but it, it was closer to the kind of thing that i liked perhaps okay. and then um and then the abominable record was um i can listen to that and not go oh you know why did i do that <laughs> that <laughs> I, instead of thinking of the things that I feel I didn't work on it. I mostly like what's on there. Yeah. Yeah. I just called up. I called up Greg again, and I said, you know, so I've I've got this weird instrumental music. I took all the songs that I had recorded at home on the four track and said, this is the music that no one will ever release. It'll never be heard by anyone. This <laughs> is all the most weirdest, obscure music that I've ever written and that no one will ever hear. And I sent it to Greg, and Greg said, yeah, let's put it out. <laughs> God bless Greg Jin. That was what people want to hate on Greg, but he made a lot of music um, exist in this world that might have never been heard. You know, it's really, really true. For sure. Well, we're just getting into the era of SST right now where, I mean, if he was, you know, just trying to make money, he certainly made some <laughs> some decisions that, you know, were based purely on art, for sure. Like, it's, you know. Yeah. It seems like it's me, and I, I always felt like it was sort of clear that SST was a collective, and that it was uh, somewhat anarchist. And um, I feel like a lot of, I mean, I know a lot of the bands later felt like they should have gotten paid when they didn't, but I was always, I mean, and I was never clear what the ideology behind SST was exactly, but I always had a sense that, um, look the money that's coming in is being pumped back into this label. But, you know, and I feel like a lot of it was handshake stuff. And But, you know, um, I've also heard from people that consider the way it went down as being very unsavory, but I don't have a firm opinion on that. You know, I, I'm not one of those people. I felt like he did right by um, by DC3 for sure. I know he helped um, them buy a van. You know, I don't think DC3 was a huge selling band. So I don't have a firm opinion. I feel like I, I know there's some bands that said, hey, man, we sold a lot of records for you and you never paid us. But I was always under the vague impression that that's kind of what SSP was. But, you know, I guess if, if Greg is off with millions of dollars and never paid anybody, then that's shady. I don't, I don't know how that... I don't know enough to... I don't have a strong opinion on that. Well, lots of people do, so <laughs> it's good that you have a, a good perspective on it yourself. I mean, I don't know if it's a good... I'm just not informed enough, Yeah. honestly, you know? What did you end up doing after that, and what are, what are you doing now? 
Oh, I have a recording studio in Los Angeles called Kitten Robot. And um, basically, I just um, record bands and artists every day, all day. <laughs> I like it much better than being in a big band that tours because my experience of touring is you play the same set or something approximating the same set every night for an hour. And um, it doesn't feel like a very creative endeavor. Yeah. But I think for a performer who lives for connecting with an audience, I feel like that's what they should do. They should be performing for audiences. But um, my art form is more to create, to compose and create music for people to listen to. So I'm like a more of a studio creature. And so I'm like very lucky that I've been able to land in a place where I get to make music all the time. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I worked with some punk bands. I worked, I do, I do all the, the TSOL stuff that's been coming out, their okay. last album and their singles and uh, a lot of interesting. Um, oh, I mean, I'm working a lot with a prog artist named Fido right now. I feel like I've discovered a really brilliant talent named Henry, Harry Cloud, who um, I've done a bunch of records with him and, uh, and he's a, um, a really unique and special artist. And sometimes I get, just young people that just come in. There's a band called Egrets on Ergot that walked in completely raw and has gone on to become a pretty big band in LA and has started touring and may, um, and may even, you know, get somewhere. I don't know, but I think they're really, uh, I feel like I contribute a lot to that. And then a lot of artists that were old artists like my age or, or maybe a little younger who, um, maybe was in, were in punk bands. And then went away and had jobs and had lives. And then decades later, they realized they still feel like they need to, they need to express themselves musically. And uh, I've had like five or six guys like that. And each time I'm like going, God, this is so incredible. I must just have no perspective because, <laughs> because I just like all these people that come in. And then I realized, no, actually they are amazing. And why wouldn't they be? They're punk rockers that are doing it for all the right reason, but who have right. evolved over 30 years and are experimenting and doing all this interesting music. So um, I found that's one of the things that happens in here quite a lot is these these older guys that just are um, just doing it for the same reason we did when we first started, because we ha are we're driven to say something, you know? Right. Um, I don't do a lot of like corporate stuff in here. I don't do a lot of um, commercial stuff. I'm, I don't do like commercials or movie soundtracks it's really just a lot of artistic people sort of expressing themselves and making their statements i'm always recording my own stuff too that that always sort of dribbles out and um i put out a i wrote a, a 20 minute song last year based on a book called galatea by richard powers that i was pretty proud of i thought maybe like i turned 60 this year i thought maybe my and I, I give so much creative energy to all the artists that come in here. I thought maybe I was just done, you know? So when a 20 minute song came out that I was really <laughs> thrilled about, I was like pleasantly surprised that, that I still have something left <laughs> in my tank. <laughs> Where can people go to hear this stuff? Do you have a website? Yeah, I have a website, paulrosser.com. And then you can, um, I have a SoundCloud, which is where I really just, I just put up almost everything I do. Um, the Ark you can buy, if you search Paul Rosser, The Ark, there's a label that put it out, Records as Ad Nauseum. That's available. Um, there's a, a, a album I put out called 612 that's available on Bandcamp. 
that came out on CD and digital. Um, the arc, I haven't done the digital yet. It's only on vinyl. Um, so you kind of have to search around Paul Rosser. And then Galatea is also on Bandcamp. Galatea is the 20 minute piece. That is, that comes out. I mean, you can download it, but you can, you can buy a, a little booklet that's the lyrics and it comes with the download code. So that's actually came out in a book form because vinyl, CDs, cassettes, digital download, it's like, what's the point of releasing anything? So I did it as a, you know, there's just like media. The medium is so confusing how to even release. I mean, people are doing vinyl for collector's items, but I wanted to just have something that costs like two or three bucks or, I mean, I think it's five bucks and you could just download the thing and it comes with a little, a little package. Yeah. And then if you just want to hear my own stuff, it, I just put up most all of it on SoundCloud. You can't download it, but you can listen to it. And then, um, I have a, the kitten robot has a Facebook site and I always, post the different bands I, I work with up there. But it's so much, you know? It's like, you know, when I was starting out, I thought that I was composer. And then later on, I was like, oh, I'm a keyboard p- player for bands. I did that with the <laughs> Screamers and with a bunch of bands. So that's, I do two things. I'm a composer and I'm also a keyboard player who also plays in bands. And then now I'm also, you know, for a while I thought being a producer is kind of like a job that I really like, like the best job I could possibly have. But now finally it's like become where actually I feel like production is also an art form. It turns out I have three different things that I do. I compose, I play keyboards for people, and then I'm a producer. And it's cool because like while we're making that record, I'm a member of the band, you know, I'm part of the band, sort of controlling. It's very invisible because my goal is to capture like I was talking about before, to capture the essence of the artist themselves and be as invisible as possible. But while I'm doing that, I have my hands on every single sound that's in there, you know, in, a, in an interesting yeah. and cool way. So it's um, it's fun. Like, I feel like the TSOL album, The Trigger Complex, um, I feel Straight like that's a, a really great... Have you heard it? Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. I mean, that yeah. was um, a band, you know, for them to put out an album that good after so many years and it's pretty adventurous, you know, and yet it's, yeah. and then we've got, we've got three or four or five songs. They're doing them as singles now. Um, that took some real production to be able to draw that out of that band. I mean, they live in different cities. You know, they have a lot of like bad, they, they love, they have love hate relationship amongst <laughs> all of them, I think. So that's become like a, a, a interesting way of our art artistically, um, expressing myself sort of invisibly and anonymously i mean yeah it says i produced the record but people don't really necessarily know what that is and that's fine i like the idea of um just having my hands on like you know the um the la punk scene and the ss scene were so rich and such there's such a wealth of stuff that came out and like my idea is that my studio is a place like that that if people were to ever stumble on and research all the different records that we've recorded here and i i have them all sitting on a shelf here um by my front door it's like there's a lot of them and i feel like you know not that i expect somehow the world to take notice because i'm far beyond caring about such things but um i do know that the um the this wealth of interesting music has been recorded here over the last seven or eight years that's kind of comparable because i was in those other scenes i know what i know what that was like and I know that what goes in and out of the doors of this studio here, it's a, um, it's kind of a similar thing. It's it's very exciting. It gets me up in the morning. 
Well, that's great. Uh, listen, Paul, it's, I've really enjoyed talking to you. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me tonight. Same here, man. Okay, well, there you have it. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. There is just a ton of really interesting stuff there and uh, a great interview. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I wrote down some of the stuff that I that I really liked from his interview. I like that he sounded like just an awesome guy and he kind of, uh, you mentioned it to me when you spoke to him, but kind of has a same similar type of vibe as like when you listen to an interview with Kira, right? They sound a lot alike to me. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, I have total respect for the fact that he has carved out a real niche for himself doing something that he clearly loves. You know, yeah, he, he's, for sure. he's producing and recording bands that he wants to work with on his own terms. And it's really great that he is clearly, you know, enjoys doing it. Yeah, we should be so lucky. Yeah. So here's a few things that I picked out from his interview. And I mean, I noticed this from listening to the album, but um, having a bassist, uh, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, he kind of, well, he mentions it in the interview, but he kind of played the bass on the keyboards on the the first album. And right. this, this one kind of definitely freed him up on the, on the keys to, to go a little bit, you know, a little bit wilder. He also thinks his, his contribution contributions to uh, DC3 are, I think the word he uses are terrible. <laughs> I don't agree with that. I, I really like his songs on this album. We'll get to that when we, when we do the list, when we go through the tracks and he thinks it's weak as a collection of songs in general. I, th the impression I get from him is that he really saw this as Dez's band and kind of thinks like Dez wasn't as prepared. Like they did this and the next one, both in 86 and I haven't really gone ahead to listen to to the next one, but he he makes it sound like he, for him, it's way more uh, complete album. I also think he his personal experience recording this album maybe plays into it a little bit. Like he overdubbed his parts, as he says in the interview, after the rest of the band had recorded theirs, and so maybe he's a little bit. Uh, you know, his, his personal experience kind of tainted the whole thing for him a little bit. Did you, would you agree with that, Ryan? Yeah, he's pretty hard on himself for sure. And I think it, it is, uh, it's derived from how it actually went down for him for sure. Yeah, I, I do agree. Like side two of this album for me is a little weaker. Like there's some filler for me, maybe. He, he kind of says they needed more material and they weren't ready to record. If they would have maybe had a few extra tracks, it would have been a really standout record, but I still think it's really great. He kind of says there's an instrumental, a cover, two Paul tracks, and he thinks it's kind of lacking in Des material. So I think that's kind of where he's coming from, that for him, you know, an instrumental is maybe a throwaway, a cover's a throwaway. His two tracks in his mind are... are throw away because it's a Des band so I can see where he's coming from that it's it's lacking in Des material but but I don't think I don't think it's you know the album suffers for it my favorite part of the interview is when he says that people used to call them DC three hours for, <laughs> yeah. for jamming yeah 
it, it kind of reminds me of when we saw Earthless the other week there. Yeah, Just for like, sure. Whoa, yeah. whoa, another solo. Wait a second. That's the same solo from 20 minutes ago. Yep. <laughs> uh, I liked that he gives, gives a nod to Biscuit's era flag, as lots of people do. Yeah. Hey, I got a crazy Chuck Biscuits question for you that might just like sound ridiculous, but okay, like Chuck Biscuits is still alive, right? Yes, lots. Of, <laughs> apparently, there was like a internet rumor that he died a few years ago, but he he's alive. Yeah, why isn't that guy drumming anymore? I don't know. Lots of people ask that. The last thing I know that he did was I saw him play drums for social social distortion but that was like I mean I'm not super up on social distortions history when I saw him play drums it was like that white light white heat white trash album and that was like it's their big major label record that was like 25 years ago probably oh yeah I remember you going to that show and I was like not interested yeah I don't know how much longer he was in the band, but I don't think he's done anything since then. That's a shame. Yeah. Anyways, you digress. Yeah. Uh, he mentions Criminy. Right. SST-154, Ruth and Smear, and SST-196, his solo album, Abominable. And the way he talks about those albums makes me excited to get to them. Yeah, he's way more pumped about those than this record, hey? Yeah, for sure. Uh, here's a few interesting things. I did a little looking around on his on his discogs, and in 1987 he did a self-titled Twisted Roots album that I've never heard, and it's got Dez on guitar, and the bass player is Bruce Duff. What? Yeah. Oh my God! Thank goodness I was going through some Duff withdrawal. You know what though? I'm I am it's on my list to reread that Bruce Duff book because I read it like 2 years before I recommended it to you and then for several episodes of the podcast I was like god dang it Brant's enjoying it too much. I got to read that thing again. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to reread it again because I remember it was a hoot. Yeah, it's really good. And he had another an earlier so I only have the one twisted roots thing. There's an earlier one called Paul Rossler's Pandemonium Show featuring Twisted Roots. And some of the people on that are pretty interesting. Dix Denny, who played guitar in The Weirdos. Gary Jacoby. I want to say Jacoboli, but it's a different guy. Uh, who, <laughs> <laughs> who was uh, in Death Folk on New Alliance. Right. And he later played in this band, Celebrity Skin, who was on... Uh, Triple X Records. It's an album I really like. They're kind of like a, they're they're a lot like Red Cross to me. And that album was engineered by Giza X, actually. Uh, Kira plays bass on this uh, Twisted Roots album, and uh, Michelle Bell did vocals, and she's kind of associated with the Germs. And she, I think, she did some stuff on that Ruth and Smear album as well. And then Paul Cutler, who was in uh, the Dream Syndicate. He replaced Carl Prakota on uh, Out of the Grey. And if anybody ever wants to hear uh, Paul Cutler really go off, they should check out the Dream Syndicate album, Live at Raji's. He also played in United Gang Members with Chuck Dukowski and Bill Stinson, Vox Pop, uh, The Consumers. Do you know them? I don't know. Uh, their album 
it's called All My Friends Are Dead. It came out on In the Red like several times. It's been issued, reissued like three times, but it was originally recorded in 1977. That's a really interesting punk album. It's kind of like, almost like Radio Birdman-esque a little bit to me. Oh, I bet you I'd like that. Yeah. Anyways, those are, those are the... Yeah, I like it. Yeah, hmm. those are all the kind of the people that played on this this Twisted Roots album. So he's played with uh, Paul Cutler was also in Forty Five Grave with Paul uh, Rossler. So I mean, he's played with so many cool people. And another album, right? I'm going all over the place right now, <laughs> but another album he mentioned that I think I said we talked about on the pod, and I'm not sure we did, is Kill Slug Answer the Call. And I know you have that album. Oh, yeah. That's a really good, great record. Great record on Tang Records. Yeah, I thought maybe we talked about it when we were spieling about Tang, but I'm not sure if we did. I don't think we did. I think we we kind of mentioned a bunch more well-known bands like yeah. Poison Idea and stuff like that in Burma. Yeah, kind of a, a very like flipper-esque band. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, when I want to get my noise rock on, um, Kill Slug is right up there. Yeah. One more kind of thing I wanted to talk about before we talk about the album is I was looking up some of the stuff on his that's been recorded at his studio, Kit and Robot. Uh, and a, a single that I got this year, actually, by a band called The Darts, garage band out of Arizona, uh, came out on uh, this label I like called Dirty Water Records, but it was also a split release with Alternative Tentacles. And uh, I didn't even know uh, when I got it that it was recorded there. Kitten Robot, or I probably saw it and didn't know that that was Paul's studio. If anybody wants to have an interesting listen, you should check out Harry Cloud's Bandcamp. That's a uh, a project that Paul mentions in the interview. Harry Cloud's After School Special. It's on Bandcamp. It's pretty good. Uh, an album that I really liked that came out last year, uh, TSOL's The Trigger Complex, was recorded there by Paul, and he plays on it too. He also recorded the Thor album Metal Avenger that came out in 2015. You have that oh. al- you have that album, right, Ryan? Oh my god, no. <laughs> you know you know what's interesting about that oh, album? Wait, wait a second, wait a second. But you do have it, don't you? Of course you? I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I like Thor. I know it. Oh, man. Okay, keep going. We'll still be friends. Do you want to know what's interesting about that Thor album, Metal Avenger? Please tell me. Okay, so uh, lots of uh, cool people played on it. Cheetah Chrome. You know who Cheetah Chrome is. Which one? The one from the Dead Boys or the one from Left Insane? No, Dead Boys. No, wait, that's Tony Cicero. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brian Forsyth, you don't know who he is. He's in a really awesome band called Rhino Bucket that I like a lot. Fast Eddie Clark, tell me you know who Fast Eddie Clark is. Not a chance. Fast Way and uh, Motorhead. I don't own a single Motorhead oh record. Oh my God. J.J. French, do you know who J.J. French is? Nope. Twisted Sister. I don't own a single Twisted Sister record. Oh, for God's sakes. Frank Meyer, Streetwalking Cheetahs, played on it. Uh, Rick Agnew, you know who Rick Agnew is? Yeah, he's a... Uh... Like a British Columbia punk rock guy, right? Is he from BC? I thought I kind of think he's associated with the adolescents. Oh, oh, okay, no, 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 different, different guy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And also a guy who played in the Streetwalking Cheetahs, 
did some overdubs and mixed it at his studio called Tone Duff, and his name is Bruce Duff. <laughs> Wait, isn't uh, but wouldn't Joey Keithley be on the Thor record too? Not I on, the, he's not, on the, not on this one, but you know who does some vocals on this Thor album uh, on a song called Master of Revenge? No, uh, it's this guy named Henry Rollins. <laughs> oh my god I'm pretty sure it's his last vocal performance like ever before he retired from singing on a on Thor four? album Yep. oh my god Hank you gotta pick up the mic at least one last time buddy <laughs> anyways that's my Paul Rossler uh, discogs notes there Ryan do you want to talk about the tracks on this album yeah let's do that history lesson part two Okay, so we start on side one uh, with a track called The Locust. I think this is one of the ones Paul liked. Uh, it's written by Dez. It's, I wrote it's a killer opening track. I like Paul rocking out on the keys. There's some bongos in it, I think. Yeah, there's definitely bongos going on. Yeah, Dez, as he does throughout the album, is just melting the frets. <laughs> All I could think about every time Des was peeling off a gnarly solo was like, he never would have lasted in flag, man. Do you know what I mean? No, no, he couldn't. Like, there's no way Ginn would have left, let him stay in. Well, yeah, that, and I don't think he would have been being content to just, you know, play rhythm guitar. Yeah, exactly. Hey, by the way, I don't want you to be, like, trolling me on social media with like motorhead and twisted sister records now okay <laughs> do not do that it might happen i might send you some like i might dropbox you like uh, come out and play by twisted sister <laughs> uh, i love the descending riff coming out of the solo into the main riff it's really good it's a good song the locust do you have anything for these tracks or should i just Keep going as the. No, word. I I I mentioned uh, similar to you on the locust. I had, I mean, for me, frankly, I thought the playing was really good. It didn't really grab me as a track, but the bongos and the keys are what stood out for sure. I know, like, I was like, are those bongos? And I was like, wow, they're bongos. Yeah. But the keys, the keys stood out for it for me in particular. I really listened to the keys on this record after hearing uh, Paul's interview. I okay. totally really tuned my ears to that, and they're all over the place on this record. Yeah. Uh, track two is the title track, The Good Hex, written by Dez. This is one that uh, I know Paul called like a really beautiful song, which it is. It's a nice, really nice Hendrix-esque solo, like kicks off the song. Lots of in cool instrumental components to the song. Um, amazing soloing from Dez and uh, really good lyrics as well. So here's what I wrote for this one would not be out of place on side two of Left Overture. That's what I wrote, that What's Kansas that? record. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. It, would, it seems like it would fit there for me. Okay. Didn't think I was going to give you a Kansas record. I did not. Did yeah. yeah. Well, keep, keep going. Okay, track three, Remain Forever True, written by Paul and Des. So this one's got Paul on vocals. Paul's a, a really good singer. Uh, this song, lyrically, vocally, and uh, with the piano, that like he uses a piano sound, I'm pretty sure on it's on his synth, it's not an actual piano. Uh, it really reminds me of Beneath the Remains, or sorry, Beneath the Shadows era TSOL, which I love. 
Did you catch that vibe at all? Like even his vocals and the lyrics as well really remind you know, me of that. Yeah, you know, I'm not the biggest TSOL fan. I've been meaning to go back and kind of revisit. So it's tough for me to 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 pick up what you're putting down because I just uh, I got to dig deeper on TSOL on that yeah. first. Well, one of my faves. Trust me, it's it would not be out of place on a TSOL album. Uh, track four. This one's called "If We'll All Be Free." It's written by Des and Paul. Uh, it's mainly an instro with some kind of cool call and response vocals. I think it's Des and Paul kind of doing the, the call and response. More insane soloing from Des. Really tight rhythm section holding it all down. Uh, you can see how this could really go off live. Like they could really jam on this one. Oh yeah. For like DC three hours maybe. Yeah. When they go back into the main riff, Paul is just going off on some really wild soloing. Uh, Louis really solid. He's he's a little jazzy even on this track sometimes. It's kind of it gets lost a little bit because they're not, you know, uh, it's really a Des and Paul thing. But the rhythm section is really tight on this whole album. Yeah, I mean, you know, I still like I I really gave this record a a dedicated listen, and I'm still waiting for DC three to to sink its hooks into me. But one of the things that stood out is just everyone, like everyone's playing on this record is top notch for oh, sure. Oh yeah, you can tell they were a tight band, man. Yeah. Okay, flip it over. No one but yourself to blame slash never. This is written by Paul and slash DC three. Louie's all over the kick drum on this one. He's almost doing like a double kick, but you can tell it's like a single kick. Uh, this is a real rocker. Dez's solo uh, to start the track is just a total ripper. Uh, there's no keys on this one until the solo, which is just this short little solo by Paul. It's mostly Dez soloing on this track. Paul's singing is really awesome. Uh, and then it kind of goes into a... The, the Slash Never song, which is like a standard blues jam with kind of a honky-tonk piano, almost. Uh, then we go into track two on side two, The Maniac, written by Dez. This is a mid-tempo kind of bluesy rocker. I, I really like Dez's singing voice. Some of this stuff uh, really reminds me of Rory Gallagher's kind of rock era. Like he did an album called Calling, Car Calling Card, which is one of the first Rory albums I got into. It's produced by Roger Glover of Deep Purple, and it really reminds me of that. I wouldn't be surprised to hear Dez was was into Rory Gallagher also. Is, is Rory Gallagher that guy that was like long hair, beard, top hat, and white face on one of the album covers? No, you're thinking of Leon Russell. I am thinking of Leon Russell. Who the hell is Rory Gallagher? Rory Gallagher is an Irish guy, was an Irish guy. He... Uh, just recorded like dozens of albums, lots of live albums. Probably his most famous one is called Irish Tour. He he was like proudly toured Ireland, Ireland like right in the middle of like the troubles and all like the IRA bombs and stuff. When like nobody would tour Ireland. There's a documentary about it, I think. That's kind of his famous album. But he's like a, I don't know, he never really crossed over into America. He's like a... A bluesy rocker. He, his first band was called Taste. They did a couple albums, and then he just went solo. 
he, he got asked to join the Stones, I believe, when uh, Mick Taylor left the band uh, before mm. they before they got Ron Wood in. I think, don't quote me on this, but Rory might have wrote "Start Me Up," like the riff to "Start Me Up." No way. Way. But yeah, I mean, many many great albums. Calling Card is a good one for me. Uh, unfortunately, Rory drank until his liver fell out and he died. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> just an amazing talent. Wow, played played like this. His Strat is one of the most like beat up instruments you've ever seen like just everything on it is all rusted from like sweat total power trio too hey okay yeah but but blues hey more yeah i don't want to say that because you'll write it off as just blues like really great songs check out some rory gallagher man check out like photo finish is a good rory gallagher album or calling card i'll drop box you some shit Rory's great. He's got really good songs, and he's an amazing guitar player. I will be more open to Royer Gallagher than Twisted Sister, so lay it on me. <laughs> All right, coming your way. Track three, Home is Where You Hang Your Head, written by Dez. This is just a bluesy rocker, one of the weaker tracks for me. And then speaking of blues, they end with, they call it Bang, 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 but I know it as Boom Boom by John Lee Hooker, one of his most famous songs. It's kind of written in the boogie-woogie style that John Lee Hooker was famous for. Just a quick spiel on John Lee Hooker. Uh, he was pl playing blues clubs in Detroit during World War II, working at Ford Motor Company at the time. Recording career started in 1948. And he started getting a lot more exposure in the early 60s when uh, the British and American bands, lots of the British invasion bands like the Stones, you know, were paying homage to all these uh, blues guys like... Uh, Oh, you know, Muddy Waters. Yeah, Muddy Waters and uh, well, even B.B. King and Robert Johnson. Yeah. The Groundhogs were a band that covered him. He did an album with Canned Heat. And uh, of course, they all popularized his music. He died in 2001. Some of his biggest tracks are Boogie Chillin' and One Bourbon, One Scotch, One Beer, made famous by George Thorogood. Yeah, well, when I was a kid and I watched the Blues Brothers movie, that's one of the scenes that stuck out to me as a kid watching it like and i mean really really young yeah that scene that scene where uh he's just playing in the street and then there's a number of scenes in that movie where there's just some killer music when you're a kid and your mind is just getting blown right yeah. and uh this that's one that well, stuck right? out to me yes that's yeah. this is the song he plays in it right yeah. boom 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 so that ends the album just going over to the album real quick so it lists who plays on it engineered by Mike, Mike Lardy. Do you remember who Mike Lardy is? I remember the name. I can't remember where we saw him last. So Mike Lardy engineered Light Life, Project Mersh, Born Too Late by St. Vitus, and The Thirsty and Miserable 12-inch by St. Vitus. Now I know we, we haven't done those two Vitus albums yet, but do you know what all those albums have in common, Ryan? Mike Lardy? Besides Mike Lardy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trivia uh, question for you uh the studio that they were recorded in that okay yeah they were all recorded at total access i believe yeah but yeah, one yeah. one more thing hmm i don't know man i got two out of three hit me with a third they were all produced by joe carducci oh nice yeah so definitely 
I think there has to be a connection there. Like Joe maybe liked working at a total access with, with uh, Mike Lardy, who by the way, also was the rhythm guitarist in great white. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I remember that. That's right. Over a number of dates, which we cover in the interview, December 7th through 9th, 1415, 19 and 20, 1985. Let's do the cover art. It's by Mapart, University of Bremen, West Germany. What do you think of this cover? It looks like blurry and pixelated with some, uh, you know, with just like some font that was lying around that they put on it. It doesn't blow me away, the cover art, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's like, it looks like a computer manipulated, like a black hole or something, but it's not. Uh, Yeah, I agree that... The lettering they use for DC3 is not the best. It's like a... It's like gothic calligraphy. Yeah. And then there's the good hex with like this little compass thing or whatever you call that. Yeah. I, the, the art looks like just pixelated to me. My yeah. favorite are the photos on the back. I yeah. love them. Yeah. Naomi Peterson photos. Yeah. And you know what? I, I never made this connection before. And it, I mean, it might just be totally out there. But... You know another Peterson that these photos remind me of? Charles Peterson. Oh, yeah. It's kind of the black and white, but in the in this one, like the shadows, yeah. the, the way that these are framed in the shadows, it it's reminiscent of a lot of sub-pop promo photos to me for some reason. I don't know why it struck me that way this time, and I don't know if you see it too. Yeah, now that you mention it, I do, yeah. Uh, just real quick, top to bottom, well... I think that's Louie in the shades. Looks like a Louie. Looks like a drummer, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, cool stash, cool shades. Well, uh, he's got a vest on. Come on, yeah. that's a drummer. I'm pretty that's... sure it's a leather vest. If you look at the next picture down, that's a leather vest, man. Yeah, that's a drummer, for yeah. sure. Dez is wearing a really cool hat there. Yeah, like a Rasta hat almost. Yep. Paul's rocking the dreads, which is awesome. What kind of fender is that? that just a strat it's a strat yep yeah they're great pictures i like the last one here where paul and uh louis are cutting up a little bit yeah and des is like wearing an nfl jacket hey yep it's pretty awesome uh it says here available on cassette this never came out on cd which is interesting because they were doing cds at this point yeah my copy of this record comes with a like a promo insert for releases on the label oh yeah like a Guns N' Records type one or something? This one actually says, after June 1, 86, this catalog is, is expired. It's a it's a double-sided one-pager. It's yeah, I, think, advertising. I think we've seen this one before. Well, well let's see. It's It says uh, the big picture on one side is advertising who's got the 10 and the half inch. Okay. And the thing that stuck out for me this time looking at this insert is it has a section on, quote, non-SST ghetto. Really? What's what's in the, the non-SST ghetto? So it appears to be New Alliance Records releases and uh, Thermidor releases that SST was distributing at the time. Oh, cool. So it's got Minutemen, Politics of Time, Tour Spiel, Bean Spill. Husker Du, Landspeed Record, and then it's got the Nig Heist LP and 7-inch. You could uh, order all of those through this SST catalog. That's the first time I've seen that. 
Well, we're coming up on the era where Greg Ginn bought New Alliance. So maybe when he bought New Alliance, he got like their existing stock or something like that. Yeah. Well, there weren't many left if that's all he had, like three or four and the yeah. Thermidor stuff. But uh, yeah, that's the first time I saw that. There's a couple of quotes on the back too, hey, of this record. Why don't you lay them on me? Oh boy. So there's one from Dez. And it says, we belong to a strange generation, one that at times seems very intelligent, but with an attention span that lasts a split second. We are easily agitated, yet too often only grasping for simple solutions to our problems. We ask ourselves the big questions, capitalized big questions, by the way, concerning our purpose here on Earth and the state of things in politics, society and the arts. I have asked myself these questions, too. And I may never find the answers, but there is one universal question I do have the answer to. Dezo, can you rock us? The affirmative answer is in these recordings. To those who ask what the difference is between the music I play now and what I used to play, I would say that there is no difference. Signed, DC. And then there's another quote attributed to Al Einstein, and it says, Energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be transformed. Babu. You got that right. You know what the thing about this album is for me, Ryan? I know that a lot of our listeners listen to these albums on YouTube before they listen to our podcast or during or after. And Paul kind of says that he doesn't think this one is up on YouTube. And man, I have to say, like, I always Google the bands that we're doing and stuff just to see what I can find. And there's not even any pictures of DC three in a Google image search. Like it's, they are criminally underdocumented. Yeah. It's bizarre. And they released like what? Four, five records, four, three studio and one live. Yeah. That's bizarre. And they're not the last one on SST like that. Well, I hope this one is up on YouTube. I never looked, but uh, I hope it is. So anybody who doesn't own this album can hear it. Cause it's, it's worth hearing for sure. Do you want to do the ballot result? You bet. Let's do it. Ballot result. Okay, Ryan. So I'm, I'm gathering just based on comments you made that you're still not a huge DC three fan. You can maybe appreciate their musicianship, but not one you're going to go back to over and over again. Yeah, no, you know what? Like I still really want to like them and maybe I will. And you know, it's like I'm reading, um, a biography on that band Faith No More, which is like a lifelong band of mine. And I really got into them when I was like in grade eight on that album, The Real Thing. And then Love their it. next album next album came out, Angel Dust. And I hated it when I first got it. And it took me like three years to get into it. And now it's one of my favorite records of all time. And so DC three might be a sleeper for me. I don't know. I'm going to try and go back to it. And each time we hit a DC three record, I'm going to go back to the previous ones because there's something there. I just, uh, it just doesn't happen to me yet. That's fair. I really like this album, especially the a side. I should have listened to shit. What's the first one called? This is the dream, right? I should have listened to that one again so I could compare the two. Cause I remember really liking that album. I listened to them back to back this week and I much prefer This Is The Dream. And just so you know, I was just looking and The Good Hex does not appear to be up on YouTube, but This Is The Dream is. Hmm. That's unfortunate. 
Well, I hope most of the people listening own this album because it, it, if you don't, I, I imagine you can get it for a steal on Discogs and it's whatever you have to pay for it. It's probably worth it. Yeah, you can find DC3 stuff pretty easily at a, a relatively okay used shop. So I probably get to pick the ballot result. Hey? 100%, as long as it's not a Thor song. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, here's my conundrum. So it's kind of Dez's band, but we had Paul on the podcast this week, and I really like Paul's contributions to this album. His vocals on No One But Yourself to Blame are really great. His track Remain Forever True is really good, but the Dez songs are really good too. You're not going to help me out at all? I'm going to throw a vote behind a Paul song because he was such a good dude to us. Let's do No One But Yourself to Blame. Let's do it. Des really rips it up on guitar in that song, so we can get, (laughs) you know, Des gets his due. Does he melt the frets on it, Brent? He pretty much does, yep. (laughs) Fret melter. Yep. Ryan, what's next week? Well, next week, I think I'm going to make up for maybe a mistake I made on an earlier episode on Angst. I think I may have said that the self-titled 12-inch by Angst, uh, I think I mistakenly said it's not on SST, but in fact, it's next week. It was originally released on Happy Squid Records, but was thankfully re-released on SST. So we're going to hear the self-titled Angst 12-inch, and I'm really looking forward to it. I've, I've been a big fan of this one for a long time, so super pumped. Me too. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.